This episode of Radio Vet Nurse discusses suicide. If this is going to be triggering to you, you may want to sit this one out. I've also placed the support line numbers in the show notes. I want to add that the opinions expressed in this episode are solely my own and do not necessarily express the views or opinions of my employer. This podcast was recorded on Gubby Gubby Country. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional ancestors and custodians of this land and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome to Radio Vet Nurse Interrupted. I'm Kat Walker. On the previous episodes of Radio Vet Nurse Interrupted, I shared the way the vet industry crisis has affected my life personally, and I also spoke to industry leaders and experts about the biggest stresses that are leading to this crisis. If you haven't listened yet, I suggest you head back to catch up. Today I wanted to start looking to the future and we'll be speaking with everyone from directors to counsellors to the president of the ABA to get their take on what they think the industry can do to make lasting change. Leaders have such power to influence the workplace culture, individual well-being, and they really set the standard of what's acceptable in the workplace and they have the, the power to make changes or, or dole out consequences. That's Kat Williams. After developing quite severe anxiety and depression when working as a vet, Kat set off on a different career path and began studying psychology. Kat currently works as a behaviour support technician and her goal is to become an organisational psychologist supporting the vet industry. I'm I'm sure most of us have experienced the the challenges of a a practice manager that's maybe not setting up the best systems for us or or not demonstrating the best behaviour. If they are setting the boundaries with the authority that they have, you know, ensuring that that staff are, are getting the right support and, you know, the ability to take the breaks. And it's not just saying, hey, guys, take your break, but also watching them model it themselves, mm. watching them, you know, sit in the, the staff room, not answering any phones, you know, being fully present. If, if mm. they do it, then, you know, it sends the message to us, yeah, it's okay that we do it. It's encouraged and I'm not going to be shamed for being, you know, for not working hard enough. Also, the important thing to pair with those messages is also the resources. You know, I have heard of employers saying, you know, it's really important that you take your break. It's really important that you take your break. But, you know, if if the schedule is just overbooked and there's not Mm. enough staffing, it becomes a bit of lip service in some circumstances Mm. where, you know, you might be toting this message. But if you're not backing it with actual practical support to make it happen, then you sort of need to question how your, you know, your words are aligning with your values and your actions. Someone that certainly isn't lip servicing is Dr. Jocelyn Birch-Baker. Jocelyn owns High Street Veterinary Surgery in Rockhampton, but also has a separate business that helps other vets thrive. So Smooth Operating Vets are set up as a business structure to reach out to other practices and explain to them, well, there is a changing in the demographics of our veterinary profession and everyone needs vets at the moment. So we actually have to change the way we employ vets and work with vets so that they like working in our practice. I've got seven vets now and we fill in as a three full-time vet equivalent. 
I really do clinic work now and our full-time girl is leaving soon, so we'll be looking for another one. But of the five left, they're working mums. They have children at home. One's on maternity leave now and will come back next year and all through the ranges up to high school and growing up. And they all like to work part-time and flexibly so that they're home for the things they need to be home for, particularly school things and, and, you know, the child's unwell. And I find the other mothers will fit in and work collaboratively so that they're there for that vet mum to go home, vice versa, they swap around when they need to. Even with after hours, we've got, we do after hours as well and then they really like the challenges of after hours. So Smooth Operating Vets works with veterinary business owners who are struggling to retain and recruit great vets. We work together to ensure they have a veterinary business that's fully staffed, profitable, thriving, has a great culture and everyone's achieving their you know, their work goals and their personal goals and, and having a life and enjoying, actually enjoying being a vet and working in the profession again. And honestly, the past has been vets working for 50 or 60 hours. Like if you're a full-time, you get to work 50 or 60 hours and then you do after hours. And, you know, that's not good for your soul. It's not good for your family life. It's not even good for your career because you're tired by the end of that. And things just don't go well when you're tired and you're frustrated and, you know, things just get a bit wobbly. Well, they do. Let's face it. We've got the mental health things. And I honestly think it's from working too long in practices that are just demanding too much. So if we can get these ladies back into practice and just doing, you know, anything from five hours to 20 hours and just taking that pressure off and then they have that flexibility to come in and do another five hours probably or even weekends. We've got a lady that does every second weekend. There's so much flexibility that we can have and we need to start looking at it now for everybody. And extending it even to male vets as well, you Mm. know, how wonderful for this to extend in every direction, you know, to anybody that needs to say, I've got kids, this is what my work-life balance needs to look like, can we cater to it? And it requires, I think, a lateral thinking approach to business, which is what you're doing really well. Can you tell me some of the strategies that you've got in place around scheduling and that sort of thing to help? people easing back into work and to help them be able to to treat this as a lifelong career and not something that's just burning them out and, and taking them to the end of their tether. Yeah, well, we've got a lady on maternity leave. She said to me, look, I need 12 months. It's a third child. I need 12 months before I can even think about coming back. And I meet regularly with her. We did the Thrive thing that Gerarda Polly did. So we sort of did that together a bit. And she's invited to meetings, everything. So, And she's still on our WhatsApp group, so she knows what's going on in the clinic. She knows what's going on in people's lives. And, yeah, she said to me the other day, yeah, I'm just about ready. So that's really good. And honestly, she'll come in as a second vet on a Saturday morning and just start catching up with the updating on our easy vet, on our clients and any different ways you're doing things. We've got some new equipment, so she'll update on that as well. Probably those Saturday mornings when there's not a lot of pressure because – the other vet's there and two nurses are there. And then she'll, when the children are organised, she'll come back for an extra half day, then a day. And as I said, the other vet, she's half by seven through to four. And then every second weekend, she does the clinic because we share after hours. I think sharing after hours is a big one too oh. for regional areas or our on-call vet needlessly. And so how do you go about sharing your after hours? Um, we talked to another clinic. They were really keen, actually. They um, proposed it, so that was really good. It was privately owned then. It's not now, but that's okay. We just keep working with them. They're great. So they do two nights during the week. We do two nights, and then we change the Friday, Saturday, Sunday. They'll do one, we'll do the X. Any pet that comes to us that's a client of theirs, 
goes back. We send all the history every time we see any of their pets and vice versa. So there's no competition. It's, yep, we're back in the out. We're looking after you. So there's that collaboration coming through. Screening them and the answer phone says, this will cost you X amount of money. If you want a vet to come in, it will cost you this much money. And I think that helps people make a decision. I also put on there, look, we're open on these hours and these hours and you can book online. And that's probably all I say. So they know when they can phone and, and speak to a person. If they need to book, they can book online right then. And we are open those seven days. So there is pretty well opportunity to see a vet within, well, but certainly within the 24 hours. And then we always have a nurse with them as well. So they can really get stuff done. And can I just say our after hours as well? We have nurses on call with our vets so that they can just pop in and help the vets look after that animal properly, get everything done properly, and they get paid. That's fantastic that. because mm. it's so hard for vets, you know, especially if they're the vets also coming in because in a regional area, you will also have impatience over the weekend often. Yeah. And so they're often in every few hours just doing basic treatments and changing bedding and walking patients and, you know, really doing nursing work. I dislike that intensely and not get paid for it really. Mm, that's right. And that's so, right. so if, if a vet or a nurse comes in and checks up on an animal during after hours, they get paid for that as well. That's great. They, that's excellent. Yeah, they love it. They love the after hours. They can make a couple of thousand dollars on the after hours, our vets. On yeah. a weekend. Mm. And, and often probably when their partner or their mum or their friend or someone's available to help with, again, looking after kids, which is such a big factor for, for so many of us. And what about your scheduling? Like, you know, one of the things that I've been reading about is how basically capacity is having a negative impact on people, you know, wanting to deliver a certain standard of service, but always being so booked out that there's the inability to really work up the case properly. We always feel like we're running behind. The workload just seems impossible. What are your strategies around that? Are you doing like 30-minute oh, consults? Yeah, yeah or? absolutely, yeah. So we did. We used to do 15 and it was a bit, you know, a bit hurry. And um, then during when we sort of, you know, the COVID first hit and we had to have clients outside, we stretched it out to 30 minutes and then we didn't have any COVID in Rocky here, so we stepped back into the 15. And this is a really great thing about actually sitting down with your vets or your nurses, any of your people and having a chat with them. You have a chat with them and they'll come up with ideas and they'll have their reasons why. Yvette and I went and had lunch together and she said, can we please make it back to 30-minute consults? And I went, well, yeah, why not? Okay, let's give it a spin. So we did that and now we found that everyone's got that little bit of backup time to write all their stuff up, have a think about it, do any research, and they've got time to, to talk to that client so that they get to know, like, and trust the vet and they know what's going to happen to their animal. They know it's safe. If it doesn't stay that time, they know that it'll be booked in and they'll probably see the same vet if they would like to because we can arrange that. And that vet will take it through the surgery or the procedure, whatever needs to be done, and then back again. So there's this preparation and organizing and setting the expectations with the owner that can be done in 30 minutes and cannot be done in 15 so with 15 minutes, you might get in a vaccine and a heartworm thing, but what about the teeth and what about, oh, their heart just sounds a little bit not so right. Their ears, they're flicking their ears. We need to be complete care of the animal, not just hustle and bustle them through. That's my feelings anyway. So, yeah, we do the 30 minutes and the girls really like it and we're not overwhelmed. It's It's working well. And I think I do have a bit of a process of thinking about the ideal client so that people who are 
not prepared to look after their animals the way we'd like them to, they tend to go somewhere else, you know, if they want a cheap job or a hurry job or can't you just give it antibiotics thing, we'll explain to them why we can't do that and then they decide whether they're going to stay or go. Support for Radio Vet Nurse Interrupted comes from the Crampton Consulting Group. A big part of Interrupted is about proactive changes we can make as veterinary individuals and businesses. The Crampton Consulting Group has led in this space for over 20 years with individual coaching on mindset change, behavior, and mental wellness, and business coaching, including training and support products and services on the holistic functioning of a practice. The Crampton Consulting Group, together with the Animal Industries Resource Center, was the first Radio Vet Nurse sponsor back in 2018, and the Interrupted series wouldn't exist without their continued financial and personal support. Support for Radio Vet Nurse Interrupted comes from the Animal Emergency Service, AES. After having my own clinic for over seven years, looking for a job was scary. My trauma was really fresh. I was full of imposter syndrome and a newly single parent of a baby and three-year-old. I couldn't imagine who would want to employ me. AES hired me as the veterinary nurse manager on the Sunshine Coast. I was apologetic about my personal situation, but from day one, my manager and director said they knew I'd need support through this time and were thrilled to offer it. AES cares for its people, and vet nurses have a seat at the table where we run the business. Without them, I'm not sure I would have stayed in the industry, and this series wouldn't be possible without their financial support. Co-founder and director of the Animal Emergency Service, Dr. Rob Webster, is also a change maker with ideas about how we can decrease attrition. When we come to an organisational situation, Kat, and we see that massive gap in uh, ability of the veterinarians to provide that healthcare to pets, it's immediately obvious that we need to create more professionals to service those clients. Now, one day, a lot of those professionals may be robots. But for now, we've got incredibly resourceful, intelligent and caring paraprofessionals being the veterinary nurses uh, who outnumber vets by about, you know, 1.8 to 1 who are not utilised to anywhere near their capabilities when it comes down to critical thinking and um, performing technical operations in Australia. You know, the... When I think about my university degree as a veterinarian, what it really taught me was the minutiae of how drugs work and how a body works and how disease works, but none of the practicalities and 80% of the work you do on a day-to-day basis is about the practicalities. How do you unblock a cat? How do you put the IV in? How do you calculate the fluid rate? How do you induce anesthesia? How do you perform surgery? None of these things really need that five-year science degree. And when we throw on top that a lot of nurses these days have already done a veterinary technician degree, which does cover a lot of those same building blocks, it would seem to me that you know, part of this change that we're going to see is a massive increase in the amount of technical services that are going to be provided by people that aren't vets. If we want to add another thing on top of that, we we could add the training for vets and the training for nurses is, is kind of bottlenecked in the universities, but in the information age where every piece of information that was taught to me at university is available 
online? Why are we having such a, you know, such an impediment to graduating more people as the fact that we only have five universities? You know, we have veterinary practices everywhere where people can get practical training from people that have already done that degree and we've got such a need for their services and we've got free access to information. So, you know, increasing the skill level and increasing the practical ability of nurses to do a lot of this work has got to be one of the major improvements that we see over the next, you know, the next five to 10 years. We shouldn't be uh, relying on nurses for their current roles. You know, I I think they're probably doing 20% of what they're capable of. I don't know if you could put a number on that, Kat. You're a highly skilled veterinary nurse and you're also being a practice owner and you're a manager. How far can we go with our non-vet professionals? This is a topic that we discussed on the Radio Vet Nurse podcast for years, and I think it's a really interesting one. In terms of better leveraging of nurses and technicians, this is kind of our plight all around the world. And I've heard people basically describe it that veterinary nurses and technicians should be able to do everything except for diagnosing, prescribing, surgery, and prognosis. I think that those are the only four things. Mm -hmm. And it calls for another tier of people working in a supporting role to the nurses, like uh, veterinary nurse assistants. And I think that it would, in addition to helping free up the vets who we are in dire shortage of, it would also help make veterinary nursing a lifelong career because it would open up a higher level of remuneration, which at the moment some veterinary nurses get to a position in their career where they are so skilled, they are so knowledgeable, but we can't remunerate them accordingly because, you know, in the veterinary mm. business, we te- we traditionally think, well, the vets are the ones who are generating the income. So, they're on this level and then the nurses are on this level that's supporting but not generating the income. But, you know, with things like team consulting and veterinary nurse consults and better utilization of nurses in, in all practical roles and getting them to do everything except for those four things, I definitely see that we could be redistributing wages and just improving our ability to retain these amazing nurses and technicians. So, I think that is a concept that really excites me. And it's one of those ways that we can say, look, well, this was a challenging time, but look what it enabled us to do. Absolutely. And and also, as you were talking there, Kat, I was thinking about what does it look like? And don't we, which now I'm going to your area of expertise now, but don't we challenge things and then let the courts decide on whether that challenge was right. You know, I guess my question is, should we just be developing these roles and waiting for them, you know, developing them so that they fit in the framework of what we want to do as a veterinary business as, you know, looking after our patients and clients and team uh, and then wait for them to be challenged rather than sitting around waiting for the Veterinary Surgeons Board to change its ruling on what is an act of veterinary science? Yeah, that's right. And I think that in veterinary legislation in Australia, there is a lot of grey. And speaking from AVNAT, which is the registration scheme for veterinary nurses and technicians in Australia, we basically have a voluntary registration scheme at the moment, which requires us to have a certain amount of CPD and qualification to be actually a registered veterinary nurse, of which I am one. But in order to get 
that to the next stage where we have mandatory registration, we actually need the legislation in Australia to become unified and to go from each state having a different legislation to one united act. And that would be a great opportunity to give more information on that and to have a position statement, you know, to say, well, this is how we think it should look and this is what how the act should define an act of science and this is what the registered nurses should be able to do and this is what non-registered nurses should be able to do. So, Unfortunately, all of that sort of thing takes quite a long time to catch up, but you can be sure that behind the scenes, the VNCA is definitely working towards a situation like that where we have more clarity on what nurses can do, a registration scheme, which would be great for recognition of nurses and for clarity on exactly what our role is, what's the maximum of how we can be leveraged and go from there. Because at the moment, yeah, there's a lot of grey. Yeah, and I'm so encouraged hearing from you because as soon as you started talking about the legislation, I thought, thank God I work in private practice where we can just change or in business where we can just change and adapt much more quickly. But what, what you highlight is that these things, these discussions and this progress is going on all around us. And mm. I guess that's why I'm optimistic for the future yeah. because just the very fact that we are talking about this reflects the actions that are happening in the background and those actions will bring around results it just you know and in, in veterinary business i have a saying that everything takes twice as long and costs twice as much because that's the perception that you get with any change and while it does take time and it is painful you know, I'm certain if we're able to shoot forward five years, we're going to see a much different landscape uh, in the provision of animal care. And if we shoot forward 10 years, the actual way we deliver it is probably going to be so vastly different that we'll look back and go, wow, you know, I can't believe we, we used to believe some of those things. And lastly, it's time to hear from the president of the Australian Veterinary Association, Dr Warwick Vale. The AVA is the only professional association representing veterinarians across Australia and has over 8,500 members. For change to become possible, in Australia at least, we need them to lead the way. When the board asked me to be president in May uh, 2020, one of the first jobs that I took over, or I guess one of the, the duties, I guess, of the president was a real confronting duty, and that was uh, having to write letters of condolences to members of the profession and certainly ABA members that we're aware of that have you know, passed away. And, you know, we have, you know, elderly members and, and you know, we have, uh, so that's, that would be a normal part of a, of a long-standing, you know, organisation like ours that's been going 100 years. The confronting thing part of that was that, you know, having to write letters to, you know, the families of those past members and veterinarians who had uh, passed because of suicide. And what confronted me was the age and the frequency uh, of which I was having to do that. I'd been involved as a veterinarian in the Australian Veterinary Association for over 30 years. I was aware of the issues that the profession has with suicide and mental health problems. And I thought, well, I thought we were doing a pretty good job of this. And I thought that we'd had a much better handle on the factors that caused suicide and, and we had better mental health uh, across the profession. And these letters that I had to write to the families, the condolence letters, really brought it out to me that mm, we haven't got to write. I'm still writing these letters and the next president will probably still write these letters. 
and the last president was certainly writing those letters, and I didn't want to write the letters anymore. So I, I, I challenged the organisation, I challenged my board, I challenged the team to think about what we were doing in this space and to reach a set a goal. Let, let's set a target for improvement, and that became my big, hairy, audacious goal, uh, as I put it and as I announced it. And I blindsided the board and I blindsided my uh, executive team, you know, my staff team, with this big, hairy, audacious goal, not really knowing whether we could achieve it or, or what, what we needed to do, but I just felt that someone needed to draw a line in the sand and say, hey, let's think about this differently. Let's think about this with an outcome in mind rather than a, a consideration of what was going on. So that goal was to set the association, the Australian Veterans Association and the profession on a pathway over the next five years to a reduction in the rate of suicide of our uh, veterinarians by 50% and uh, I guess a corresponding increase in the, the health, uh, the mental health of the profession by 50% or, you know, or, or doubling, however you want to look at it. And you know, for us to have a plan or a strategy that sets that as a goal so that we can measure how we're going and, and I guess, um, keep it as a higher priority than what it already was. Which is fantastic because for any goal, we need it to be measurable and quantifiable and we need to actually see if we're getting somewhere. And I understand that the Australian government are also starting to look at us. You know, we're flagging with them as an industry that really needs support. So hopefully your big, hairy, audacious goal could be really well-timed with some much-needed assistance, I think, from the government. Yeah, look, um, once we started talking about it and and articulating what our goal was, it started the conversation, which, you know, to be fair, we've had this conversation for a very long time within the profession and we've, we've started on a lot of different initiatives that I'm sure have made a difference uh, and maybe the, the suicide rate and, uh, would be worse if we hadn't have done what, you know, what we've been doing, but it still wasn't good enough in my mind. And the other thing that became apparent, Kat, as I took this on and, and we dove into this is that uh, it's not just veterinarians, it's not, it's not just AVA members that were suffering with their mental health, it was veterinary staff, so nurses um, in particular. Uh, we found, and, and uh, unfortunately, there were nurses suiciding, and, and that's happened while I've been president. And so I, I just, I didn't want to leave anybody out. This is we're all in this together in this wonderful career, this wonderful profession and industry that caters for the health of animals, and is so rewarding and so much fun and so challenging, and in so many ways. But in in other ways, it's dangerous and it's toxic, and that's the challenge for us. And it's not just vets; it's 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 the, all those other participants. And you're right about the government. The government has been looking at us both through. Uh, some coronial inquests uh, in, in South Australia in particular. There were two veterinarians, young veterinarians who committed suicide and there was a coroner's inquiry into both of those deaths. You know, I've been going to funerals over here since I've been president over here of colleagues that in Western Australia has uh, have committed suicide. I, uh, there's not a vet that uh, that I know that doesn't have uh, know a colleague that has committed suicide. So we're on the government's radar. We know that for sure. But I guess one of the questions I wanted to ask of the profession and, and you know, who was showing the leadership to, to maximise that attention that the government or the knowledge that the government had about us in, in our problems and you know, who was harnessing that to deliver outcomes. And there's no one harnessing that except the Australian Veterinary Association. And I think we can do that better and I, and I want to do it better. Can you tell me about the research that the ABA has been doing with the partner? 
Yes, I can. So part of acting on my big, hairy, audacious goal, the first big step there was to partner up with an organisation that could help us uh, deliver the correct strategy. And the first stage of that was the engagement of a, of a business called Superfriend. Uh, Superfriend are a company that developed a mental health sort of strategy and suicide prevention strategy for people working in the superannuation industry. But now they've expanded out from that to help develop bespoke industry-specific uh, mental health uh, strategies for different industries, you know, um, for truck drivers, for the fly-in-fly-out industries, things like that. So they seemed like, and, and, and that was one of our sort of feelings was that, well, we can go to Beyond Blue and get a generic solution about mental health. But we felt that the factors that affected veterinarians and nurses in particular were bespoke, were unique to our professions and unique to our industry. And that needed further investigation. So we engaged a super friend, this company, and their expertise. They started with a desktop audit of what uh, services were currently in the marketplace and what services were uh, in the mental health and suicide prevention area that the Australian Veterinary Association had. Then the company then started to get information from the profession. So from uh, stakeholder groups, I think we had about 15 different stakeholder groups, including uh, veterinary nurses were invited to the table to talk to us about their feelings about the mental health factors, the risk factors that uh, exist for them. And then we went to our entire membership and we had over two and a half thousand responses, which is a record for the Veterinary Association to the survey that was put out online uh, by Superfriend. The results of that came in early October and they're there. They're there. We've presented on them. They're on the ABA website and it's really interesting. That is now, the challenge is now on the AVA and the industry and the profession as a whole to start to use those results and the recommendations that flow from them to start making some realistic change. I'll put a link to the AVA website in the show notes so that people can have a read for themselves. But what are some of the factors that the stakeholder groups raised? I'll start a little bit before those factors. The research was done to collect the risk factors through the prism of the best approach to mental health as an integrated approach. So that's about promoting the positive aspects of the work that we do uh, and the lifestyle that we lead, but because of the professions that we have, uh, mitigating the negatives. Uh, so we're trying to remove or reduce or control the impact of those negative risk factors. And then the third part of it is to manage illness. So manage the people, uh, provide resources, support and so forth for the people that had poor mental health outcomes from their work. So if you look at those three areas and you look at where uh, the profession was and is still at the moment, it, it's got a pretty good range of services that are available to treat people. You know, we have telephone counselling, we have hotlines for, you know, suicide intervention, we have, you know, those other sort of employee programs across different practices, especially in the corporate practices where employees can access, you know, help uh, if they're feeling stressed. We have a, a good understanding of it. The universities have got some really good programs that help with resilience training in undergraduates and preparing them for the lifestyle and maybe some of the challenges. But it became pretty apparent, and I'll give you a quote from one of the participants that was probably that sums it up, is that while we're probably not getting the results that we need, is because we're not focusing on the prevention side of it. You know, we're treating people well, we're promoting in some sense the positive, but the 
in terms of, you know, the controlling the intrinsic and the extrinsic factors involved in poor mental health, we're not doing a good job there. So the, the quote that that sounds like a bit of mumbo jumbo, I suppose. So what, what's the quote that really clarifies that? It says, look, don't put resources and time and effort into fixing us after we're already broken. Stop us from becoming broken in the first place. That really resonated, I think. It resonated with a lot of people. It certainly resonates with me who tries to think about these things in a simple way and get a simple clarity around what we need to do. And out of those things then comes, well, you know, people don't want more muffins around the staff room kitchen table, you know, meal table and a yoga session. If that's the underpinning, and I'm being you know, a little bit facetious, or I guess here, or sarcastic, but that, if that's underpinning and, and that's the tick box for what we're doing in terms of mental health for our workers and our, uh, our nurses and vets in private practice, it's not enough. It's the other factors that we need to look at. There's just so much to dig into there. I'm really glad you sort of said that once you started looking at the things that we can do, you know, providing counseling services or, you know, providing other supports that that the feedback was that, no, we need to look at interventions, you know, 10 steps before that. Because as somebody who has been, you know, really close to a vet who was under immense pressure and and really suffered some major consequences, what I would say is that people need to have the requisite level of insight and awareness to know that they need those things that we're offering down the track, like to know that they need a doctor or to know that they need a counsellor. And often once people have gone down that road of anxiety or stress or depression or substance use disorder or whatever it is, they don't have the insight and awareness to even know to ask for help or that they need help. So I'm glad that we're looking at answers that are, that are you know, 10 steps before that saying, how do we stop people from getting on that road? Yeah, look, and that's really some of the crux of, of one of the problems that, and that was identified that we have to work on is that even if they are recognising that they may need help, uh, and so in a sense, self-reporting to their family or their workplace or a medical professional that they have some issues and they may need help, there was a great reluctance of veterinarians uh, to do that through fear of what what does that mean if I self-report to my boss that I'm not coping uh, in terms of my job? What does it mean to my registration? Uh, what does it mean to uh, as a veterinarian? What will a veterinary surgeons board in my state say about me? I've got, you know, especially if that mental health has progressed to a substance abuse problem. We know that that's underreported and some of the fear of reporting and seeking help is around, well, I'll lose my career. I'll, I'll, the board will deregister me. My boss will sack me. Uh, I'll get a reputation. I'll never be employable again. So there were these barriers that exist when people do get into trouble. We definitely know now that the workforce sustainability problems, the shortage, in inverted commas, about veterinary supply at the moment with the increased demand that we have is not about we don't have enough vets. We have enough vets. We just don't have enough veterinarians that can uh, work and fulfill the need because it's too toxic. You know, they have to work part time or they drop out. They can't handle it because not because of they're not made of the right stuff. It's just that no one should be expected to work in the culture that some of these uh, veterinarians are expecting to work in. And fortunately, many of them are voting with their feet and leaving for their own health's sake. But of course, some don't. Some suffer, some persist, some see that as failure, and that creates a huge risk factor for those individuals. And then uh, the end result of that is, in some cases, is suicide. I know, it's not easy to hear that. It's a lot 
when laid out like that. But in order to move through it and change the industry for the better, we do need to directly acknowledge the worst of what is happening, as painful and as scary as that may be. I know that it can feel pretty powerless waiting for change from above, especially if you're currently working in a toxic workplace. On the next episode of Radio Vet Nurse Interrupted, I'll be sharing ways you can make personal change to help deal with the industry crisis, and we'll take a look at how this change works in the real world. Thanks for joining me on Radio Vet Nurse Interrupted. This series may be uncomfortable at times, it's a lot to take on and take in, but I really believe the disruption is here, and I thank you for joining me on the journey. If this episode has raised any concerns for you and you'd like to speak to someone for support, I'll be putting details of the best helplines in the show notes. See you next episode.